Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our April 2015 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. One of the most challenging obstacles contributing to the failure of clinical trials in major depressive disorder is the often substantial and highly variable placebo response rate. In fact, high response rates may prevent the detection of a drug treatment signal leading to an uninformative clinical trial. Therefore, identifying factors that influence both the placebo response and the relative likelihood of responding to antidepressants versus placebo is an important challenge to pharmacologic drug development. In this article, the authors give a focused review of the literature on this topic and suggest potential ways to optimize trial success in depression. From this review of the literature published in the last 40 years, several key elements have emerged as critical to the ultimate success of a clinical trial. The probability of receiving placebo, study duration, dosing schedule, visit frequency, the use of blinded lead-ins, the use of centralized raters, illness severity and duration, and comorbid anxiety. This information is of great importance, the authors conclude. An increasing understanding of placebo response in clinical trials can lead to a more predictable phenomenon and, potentially, to one that becomes lesser in magnitude and variability. Identifying factors that seem to play a critical role in the trial success can help reshape the design of clinical, translational, and mechanistic studies in depression. Many mentally ill homeless people who have substance use disorders struggle to find and keep housing. Little is known about the long-term housing patterns of this group. We also know little about what factors predict whether or not a mentally ill homeless person can achieve independent housing. To increase our understanding of these issues, this next study, which was supported by the Department of Veterans Affairs, identified homeless persons with serious mental illness and substance use disorders who entered a residential treatment program between December 2008 and November 2011. Thirty-six randomly selected individuals were assessed for a wide range of potential predictors of housing outcomes, such as mental health symptoms and social support. The researchers interviewed participants and then used statistical techniques to identify factors that best differentiated the homeless by housing patterns. Three main patterns emerged. Some participants achieved stable housing on their own. Others tried to get stable housing, but could not do so unless they received help from a program. A smaller group never tried to get housing on their own and instead moved from one housing program to another. Participants who were predicted to permanently stay in programs had slower processing speeds, which is a measure of cognition or thinking. Among participants with faster thinking speeds, 
those predicted to achieve stable housing had fewer mental health symptoms that would affect social relationships. On the basis of these findings, the researchers suggest that cognitive and social skills training may be useful within residential treatment programs for mentally ill homeless persons who have substance use disorders. Antipsychotic medications are prescribed for non-FDA-approved indications, including the treatment of PTSD. Given concerns about the well-known metabolic risks of these medications and the lack of evidence of their benefit in PTSD, the authors of this article explored the rates of antipsychotic use among returning Iraq and Afghanistan veterans who were seen in the Department of Veterans Affairs Healthcare. Their work was supported by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, the American Heart Association, and the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. The authors used national VA data from 2007 to 2012 that included returning veterans who had a diagnosis of PTSD. Of these 186,000 veterans examined, 19% received no psychiatric medications, 18% received antipsychotics, and 61% received other psychiatric medications. Several factors were independently associated with antipsychotic use, including male sex and enlisted rank. Patients with comorbid psychiatric conditions had two to five times the odds of receiving a prescription for antipsychotics versus other types of psychiatric medications. Substance abuse, suicidal ideation, and personality disorder diagnoses were associated with the greatest increased likelihood of antipsychotic prescription. The results demonstrate that a minority of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans diagnosed with PTSD received antipsychotics, and that these medications were being used in patients with more complex psychiatric profiles. The authors conclude that, given the limited evidence supporting a benefit of antipsychotics for PTSD and their potential adverse metabolic side effects, clinicians should use particular caution in prescribing these medications. Psychotic features are common in major depression. They are associated with poor short-term outcomes and greater mortality than non-psychotic depression. Patients with psychotic depression experience varying degrees of insight into their illness, symptoms, and need for treatment. The study of insight, however, has primarily focused on patients with schizophrenia. In a secondary analysis of data from the Study of Pharmacotherapy for Psychotic Depression, Researchers assess the relationship between insight into delusions and other clinical and demographic variables. They also assess the ability of this insight to predict treatment outcome at 12 weeks. The original study included 259 participants with psychotic depression who were enrolled in a 12-week double-blind, randomized, controlled trial funded by the U.S. National Institutes of Health. At baseline, impaired insight into delusions was positively associated with measures of illness severity. It was negatively correlated with measures of cognition. 
independent of the severity of depression or psychosis, impaired insight into delusions at baseline, and after three, six, and eight weeks of treatment, predicted remission at the end of the trial. By week 12 of treatment, 91% of participants had regained full insight or had minimal insight impairment. The authors conclude that impaired insight into delusions appears to be an independent predictor of remission in psychotic depression. They advocate a long-term study to determine the degree to which impaired insight predicts future relapse or recurrence after remission of psychotic depression. They further advocate studying its contribution to other long-term clinical outcomes such as cognition, suicide, and social functioning. People with serious mental illness die years younger than those in the general population. Most of the people with serious mental illness die from cardiovascular disease and related risk factors. Lifestyle changes, including exercise and dietary modification, are commonly recommended as first-line interventions for these diseases. The authors of this review synthesize the common factors for success in non-pharmacologic lifestyle interventions. They identified specific considerations in adapting these models for those with serious mental illness. Their work was supported by a K-24 award and a grant from the Fitzgerald Foundation. In 123 review articles, the authors studied non-pharmacologic interventions for obesity and related cardiometabolic risk factors. They found that the effects of interventions in the general population were meaningful, but generally modest. Specific elements of diet, exercise, and behavioral therapy produced larger effects. Additionally, successful programs employed multiple components, personalization, longer duration, more frequent contact, and trained treatment providers. In people with serious mental illness, however, interventions addressing these risk factors typically incorporated some, but not all, of the elements that were effective in general medical populations. The authors conclude that existing programs targeting cardiometabolic risk factors will require tailoring to address the needs of those with serious mental illness. These programs may also be harder to implement given the challenges faced by this population. However, successful lifestyle interventions for those with serious mental illness can make a significant impact on the health and well-being of this vulnerable population and may inform future strategies for other underserved groups. A diagnosis of bipolar I depression is said to present with mixed features when subthreshold levels of hypomanic or manic symptoms occur during a depressive episode. Mixed features are associated with more severe and complex illness, and clinical evidence suggests there is reduced responsiveness to antidepressants in patients with this condition. The DSM-5 criteria for bipolar depression permit subthreshold hypomanic or manic symptoms to be noted by a mixed features specifier when patients have three or more manic symptoms for the majority of days of their depressive episode. 
In a study funded by Synovian, patients with bipolar depression were randomized to six weeks of treatment with fixed flexible doses of 20 to 60 milligrams per day of lorazidone, 80 to 120 milligrams per day of lorazidone, or placebo. A post hoc analysis was done to evaluate how the efficacy of lorazidone was affected by the presence of mixed features, which were present in 56% of the study sample. In the mixed features group, lorazidone was associated with significantly greater improvement versus placebo on the Montgomery Asberg Depression Rating Scale. Further, the magnitude of improvement was the same regardless of whether mixed features were present. Lorazidone was not associated with an increased risk of manic switch. Results indicate that lorazidone may be effective for patients who experienced mixed features in association with episodes of bipolar depression. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the April Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Although serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SRIs, are the only FDA-approved medications for treating obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD, many patients who are treated exclusively with these medications do not fully recover. To augment treatment outcomes, clinicians often recommend that partial responders add exposure and response prevention, or respiridone, to their OCD treatment regimen. The authors of this study aim to compare the long-term treatment outcomes of these two augmentation strategies. The study was sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health. 100 adults with OCD who were stabilized on SRIs were randomized to receive eight weeks of acute exposure and response prevention, respiridone, or pill-placebo treatment. After this acute phase, 40 participants who responded to treatment entered a maintenance phase and continued to receive the same form of treatment for the next six months. OCD symptom severity was assessed every month by independent evaluators. After the six-month maintenance phase, participants in both groups demonstrated reductions in OCD severity. On average, participants who received exposure and response prevention had lower OCD severity compared to those who received respiridone. More participants who received exposure and response prevention demonstrated at least 25% reduction in OCD severity, thus achieving response status. Lastly, more participants who received exposure and response prevention achieved minimal OCD symptoms. The authors conclude that according to the findings of this study, OCD patients would receive superior treatment from SRIs augmented with exposure and response prevention than with respiridone. Based on their nationwide study from Taiwan, the authors of this article speculate that depressive disorder could be the brain's response to chronic infection. Their work provides further evidence to the emerging theory that depressive disorder could be caused by pulmonary tuberculosis. The researchers found that patients with pulmonary tuberculosis were 70% more likely to have a depressive disorder. Furthermore, 
If patients with pulmonary tuberculosis took ethambutol for more than 60 days, the risk of depressive disorder increased by two and a half times. The association between ethambutol dosages and depressive disorder was dose-dependent. The authors conclude that pulmonary tuberculosis is an important factor in the development of depressive disorder, possibly because of the effects of inflammatory activity. The findings in this study offer insight into the mechanism of depressive disorder and may help guide treatment and prevention efforts. The condition of chronically pulling one's own hair is called trichotillomania, or hair-pulling disorder. Among different treatment strategies, cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, has shown promise, despite the lack of randomized controlled trials confirming its efficacy. In this study, 44 individuals diagnosed with trichotillomania at a university hospital in Brazil were assigned to either the study group that received group CBT or the control group that received group supportive therapy for 22 weekly sessions. Subjects completed this self-reported Massachusetts General Hospital hair pulling scale, as well as scales that assess depressive and anxiety symptoms and social adjustment. At the end of the trial, both treatments were equally effective in reducing the depressive, but not the anxiety symptoms displayed by trichotillomania patients. The CBT group was significantly superior in reducing hair pulling compared to the control group. Despite a lack of improvement in the subject's social adjustment, group CBT may be a useful, effective treatment for trichotillomania that can be applied in primary care settings with minor adjustments and appropriate staff training. Solid evidence-based recommendations regarding the management of treatment-resistant depression is a pressing need for clinicians. The choice of an augmentation agent is often a difficult clinical decision and frequently involves a lengthy trial and error process. In this review, the authors used network meta-analysis to comparatively analyze the efficacy, acceptability, and tolerability of 11 augmentation agents in adult patients with treatment-resistant depression. The study was supported by the National Basic Research Program of China. The findings show that quetiapine, aripiprazole, thyroid hormone, and lithium were significantly more effective than placebo. However, quetiapine, olanzapine, aripiprazole, and lithium were significantly less well tolerated than placebo. Moreover, Several sensitivity analyses indicated that the estimates of aripiprazole and quetiapine were more robust than those of thyroid hormone and lithium in efficacy outcome. The authors conclude that quetiapine and aripiprazole appear to be the strongest options for augmentation therapy in patients with treatment-resistant depression. They note, however, that clinicians should interpret these findings cautiously in light of the evidence of potential treatment-related harm. Emotionally unstable personality disorder is the most common type of personality disorder seen by psychiatrists. 
Psychotropic medication is often prescribed for this disorder as clinicians respond to patients' emotional distress and risk of self-harm. However, there is limited evidence to support such use of medication, and guideline recommendations vary between countries. The authors of this article from the Prescribing Observatory for Mental Health collected data on prescribing practices for nearly 1,800 UK patients with emotionally unstable personality disorder. The Prescribing Observatory for Mental Health is wholly funded by subscriptions from mental health services in the United Kingdom. The authors found that the vast majority of patients receive psychotropic medication. 40% of patients with emotionally unstable personality disorder alone received multiple medications. The presence of comorbid mental illness only modestly increased prescribing. This finding suggests that the target symptoms and behaviors may be largely those associated with emotionally unstable personality disorder. Patients with the disorder alone, as compared with patients with comorbid mental illness, were less likely to have their treatment reviewed. The authors conclude that by ensuring regular medical review of target symptoms and treatment side effects, clinicians can gain a greater understanding of the utility of pharmacological approaches in both the short and long-term management of emotionally unstable personality disorder. In doing so, they can minimize exposure to unnecessary long-term treatment. Patients with major depressive disorder, or MDD, are likely to experience difficulty concentrating and making decisions, which can significantly affect their lives, both at work and at home. In fact, cognitive dysfunction is an important diagnostic criterion of MDD, but little of the research into treatment has focused on improving cognition along with other symptoms. Doctors George I. Papakostas and Larry Culpepper came together to discuss the connections between depression and cognition. Their conversation addressed how cognitive dysfunction affects patients' lives, even outside of depressive episodes, how cognition and depression interact in the brain, how cognition is measured in clinical trials and in practice, and the latest research into treatments for MDD that incorporate cognitive symptoms. Read this new academic highlights to learn how to address cognitive symptoms of MDD and improve your patient's chances of a full recovery. In recent years, two studies show that placebo benefits were lower when subjects were told that the medication, supposedly an act of treatment, cost less. One of these studies assessed outcomes in Parkinson's disease patients, and the other assessed analgesia in healthy volunteers to whom electric shocks were given. In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade looks at the possible placebo effect of treatment cost, particularly the question of whether generic medications are perceived by patients to be less effective. Visit us online at psychiatrist.com to read this column and participate in the discussion.
In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the April issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Sheldon signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for Psychiatry Soundbites.